second with prayer this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for being a gracious and good God to us. We thank you that even when we're faithless, you remain faithful, for you cannot deny yourself. And I pray, Lord, that as we look at important terms regarding eschatology, that you'd help us to think well in the biblical text, that we'd have clarity as to the great promises that you have for us. I pray also, Lord, that you'd use these promises to motivate us for godly living. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Dear ones, last time I had talked about this eschatology made easy, it was actually a message I'm preparing to show some other people outside of the church. And what I want to do is, because we're almost at the end of chapter 18 of Revelation, once we get into Revelation 19, we're going to be talking about the second coming of Christ. And it's at that time that we're at the end of the 70th week of Daniel. But as I keep using these terms, I started realizing that not everybody's on the same page terminology-wise. And so I want to define our terms now so that way we can pull out our charts when we get to chapter 19. Also, when we get to chapter 20, we're going to be talking about the Millennial Kingdom. Uh, Dana Birkinshaw is going to give us a message about the various millennial views. And we'll be seeing, obviously, that premillennialism is the biblical view. Now, the other thing I want to mention is when we look at these different terms, as I'm going to show you, I think every Christian should have a working definition as to the day of the Lord, the 70th week of Daniel, and the coming of Christ, known as the parousia. So those are the three terms that we're going to be looking at here today. Now, one of the reasons I think it's important to have a definition of these terms is because they are roughly synonymous, and we're going to see if we understand how these terms line up with the biblical data, there's going to, it's going to give you great clarity in reading many passages of your Bible. So let's begin. Notice on the screen I have a timeline in blue. And I want you to think about in this timeline in blue, we're heading towards a time period known as Daniel's 70th week. Now, when I use that term, what I'm referring to is the last seven years that occur in history. That is before the Messianic age will be consummated and Jesus Christ reigns over the world. So where do these last seven years come from? Well, I'll be showing you that. But I also want you to understand that the 70th week of Daniel, as you look on the screen, is synonymous with something called the parousia. Now, for those of you unfamiliar with that term, that's the technical term in Greek that has to do with the coming of Christ. Okay, for example, in James 5.8, James uses it. He says the parousia, the coming of Christ, is near. Well, how near? Well, we don't know. It's near. It's at hand. And this is where we see the doctrine of imminence come up. It is at hand. The parousia of Christ, I'm going to point to the screen here. I have to pull up my pointer. Bear with me for just a moment. There we go. The parousia of Christ is synonymous with the 70th week of Daniel in that it begins with Christ coming for the church to remove us. Why does he have to remove us? Because the 70th week of Daniel is the time of wrath. Now, we have been promised, and I'll be showing you that in this message, exemption from that wrath, time and time and time again. If Jesus does not take us out of that wrath, I think he's a promise breaker. Okay, so that's why we have to be removed prior. Then the entire time of this parousia will be Jesus pouring his wrath upon the world, and it culminates with him returning with the church, setting his feet on the Mount of Olives, and destroying all the enemies that have gathered against Jerusalem. That is the narrow day of the Lord. Okay, so that's what the parousia is. It's first him leaving with the church to heaven. Second, it's with him coming with the church to establish the kingdom of Israel. Well, this is also synonymous with what we call the broad day of the Lord. That's what D-O-L stands for, day of the Lord. If I wrote all that out, I couldn't fit it on the screen. Notice the broad day of the Lord. Now, let's talk about this time period. Let's make it really simple. When you read the Old Testament and the New Testament data concerning the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is a day, a period of time, in which God is going to do two things. He is going to save his people finally and forever, and he is going to bring the wrath of God upon the enemies of God finally and forever. Okay? Now, that's why the broad day of the Lord has to be synonymous with the coming of Christ. Why? Well, who is the Savior of God's people? Well, Jesus is. In fact, his name means Yahweh saves. So Yahweh is going to save his people by what? Rapturing them. But the same Jesus who saves his people is also the judge and Lord of all. 
And so he's going to be the one who executes the wrath during this 70th week. But notice the wrath of God and the salvation of God's people extends into all of eternity. In fact, that's why, remember in 2 Peter 3.10, Peter says, yes, the day of the Lord comes like a thief in the night, but then he links it to the destruction of the universe, which doesn't occur until after the millennial kingdom. So Peter himself sees that the day of the Lord isn't just one day, it's a broad period of time. So once we see that the Daniel 70th week and the parousy of the coming of Christ and the day of the Lord all begin at the same time, then we're cooking with gas. Then we're starting to make sense of the biblical data. Now, all of this is predicated on us understanding the 70th week of Daniel. Now, I introduced that a couple weeks ago in one of my sermons regarding God's promises to Israel, but I want to get into greater detail here and show you where does this 70th week idea come from, again, the last seven years. So let me show you in detail where it comes from. So we're going to look at Daniel's 70th week and the 70 weeks prophecy in Daniel chapter 9. Now, before I do so, any questions or comments? All with complete clarity, right? Okay. (laughs) Well, as I mentioned in the sermon... Oh, yes, Eric. I just have a comment, and and that is that anyone who has not been studying this until now, it it might seem really complicated at first, but when you go through this a few times, it's it's very clear and logical. It is. So everybody just be patient. I know a lot of the people here have have studied this, but for anyone else listening, when when you're brand new to this stuff, it's just not taught in most churches. That's right. uh, Everyone be patient. (laughs) That's right. Exactly. We, We have to learn kind of a language with everything we do. I was trying to learn how to use, I have a new iPad for flying. I can put my charts on there. Well, I'm learning a whole new language with how to run my iPad and stuff. But like anything, you have to learn new language. And in some sense, eschatology is like that. However, as you rightly said, Eric, this is logical. This is very straightforward. That's one of the things, the further I studied eschatology, I had an opportunity to do so when I was brand new at Twin City Fellowship before Gospel of Grace. One thing that I've come to the conclusion is that the the ending of time is not muddied in the scriptures. It's actually very clear once we see the data for what it is. So let's begin with Daniel's 70th week. One of the most important prophecies in the Bible is the 70 weeks prophecy. Now remember, when Daniel is giving giving this prophecy, it's around the year 538 B.C., And if you recall in Daniel 9, Daniel had prayed to the Lord that the Lord would remember his promises that he had given to Israel. You see, Daniel knew because of Jeremiah's prophecy that they were ending their time, the time for their Babylonian captivity was coming to a close. He knew from Jeremiah 25, 11 that they're going to be in Babylonian captivity for 70 years. Well, since the first deportees left Jerusalem and Judah in 605 B.C., he knew that once you reached 535 B.C., it was going to be done. So 538 B.C., he starts praying. And in his prayers, he prays that God will remember his promises. Well, what happens is when he prays, God sends an answer to the prayer that Daniel has through Gabriel, the angel. And that's what the 70 weeks prophecy is. It's God revealing to a prophet what his redemptive plan is throughout history. That's what the 70 weeks prophecy is about. So let's begin reading again in Daniel 9.24. Here's the angel revealing to the prophet Daniel God's redemptive plan. Now, again, notice it starts with 70 weeks. Let me just, before I even go any further, why 70? Well, it's a playoff of the 70 years captivity that they were in in Babylon. Again, why was Israel in Babylonian captivity for 70 years? Well, because of their sin, they didn't obey God. And one of the things they disobeyed God in was the sabbatical rest requirements of the land. How many years go by until they had to allow the land to remain fallow and not to be harvested? Well, it was every seven. Well, they didn't obey that. So what God said was, okay, if you won't allow your land to remain fallow, I'll enforce that by enforcing 10 Sabbaths on you. And that's where you get the 70 weeks. Well, now there's a play on that, or 70 years, I should say. Now the play is on 70 times 7. So 70 weeks, he says, have been decreed for your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. Now, again, these 70 weeks we know has to do with years. Literally in the Hebrew, it's Shavaim Shavim, which is 77s. 
So what the debate surrounds really in this section is what are the sevens? Okay, notice the English translator here puts it as weeks, but what they're intending to say is it's weeks of years. A week is seven. So it's 70 times seven years. Now, how do we know it's 70 times seven years and not months or days or hours or whatever? Well, we know that because, again, the denomination of time that Daniel was working with was years because of the Jeremiah 25:11 prophecy. Okay, so we know that he's talking about years. So it's literally 490 years had been decreed for whom? Well, for the people of Israel and the holy city, Jerusalem. Now, notice the other thing is that these years are actually 360-day years. Okay, now why would they use a 360-day calendar? Well, because the Jews followed a lunar calendar in their religious feast, and they also do so in their prophetic literature. For example, turn your Bibles to Daniel 7.25. I'm going to make the case that indeed Daniel's using 30-day months. And I'll prove this by looking at Daniel and the book of Revelation together. So I'm just using what the Bible's using. They use 30-day months. It's a rounded-off year, as it were. So please turn your Bibles to Daniel 7.25. Now, I can't overestimate the importance of this particular passage because it links this Antichrist that's referred to in Daniel 7.25 to the Antichrist that will be mentioned in Daniel 9.27. So we'll be coming back to this again. But for our purposes, notice the time frame that the Antichrist will wear down the saints, that he's, he's going to abuse the people of God, particularly the people of Israel. This is the Antichrist, the little horn. It says, he will speak out against the Most High and wear down the saints of the Highest One, and he will intend to make alterations in times and in law, and they will be given into his hand for a time. That's one. Times is two. If you add that together, you have three. And a half a time. Well, there you have three and a half. And the issue is that's three and a half years. The same three and a half years that you're going to see today in our Daniel 9.27 prophecy that the Antichrist wears down the saints. So if Daniel's 70th week, the last seven years is seven in total, it's the last three and a half in particular that the Antichrist is going to be wearing down the people of Israel. That's known as Jacob's great distress. All right. Now, the reason I'm pointing that out is I want you to turn your Bibles to Revelation 12.14. And I'm going to show you that the identical language is being used, but it's also qualified as 1,260 days. So please turn your Bibles to Revelation 12.14 because we want to understand how did the biblical writers understand three and a half years? Okay, do they understand it as exactly 30-day months? And indeed, you will see they do. Revelation 12.14. Notice it says here, this is about what God was going to do for Israel. He says, but the two wings of the great eagle were given to the woman, that's Israel, so that she could fly into the wilderness to her place where she would be nourished. So God is going to protect her for a time and times and half a time from the presence of the serpent. The serpent is using Antichrist there to persecute the people. How long is it? Well, for times, times, and half a time, or time, times, and half a time. That's three and a half years, exactly as Daniel 7.25 had stated. Now, look in your Bible just eight verses earlier at Revelation 12.6. Now we're going to see that this time, times, and half a time, this three and a half years is indeed exactly 1,260 days. Revelation 12.6, talking about the woman, which is Israel. It says she fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared by God, so that there she would be nourished for 1,260 days. Bingo! There you go. The three and a half years is exactly 42 months of 30 days each. Is everyone with me? So that's very important because when we do our calculations in the 70 weeks prophecy, the 490 years is using 360-day years. That's just what they use. Okay, is everyone familiar with that now? Everybody's on board? Okay, so with that established... The other thing we have to wrestle with is the breakdown of the years. What you're going to see in the prophecy is there's going to be three sets of numbers that the 490 is broken into. The first 49, notice on the screen, is going to have to do with the first rebuilding of Jerusalem and its fortifications, which ends in 395 B.C. The second number, the 434 years, is going to be added to the 49, which gives you 483 total. That's 483 years from the beginning of the decree until the Messiah would come the first time. 
Okay, that's going to be in 33 AD. Well, then the last seven years is something that's put off until Jesus' second advent. Are you with me? So the first two numbers, the 49 and the 434, if you add that together, that gives you Jesus' first advent. The last seven years is left over for Jesus' second advent. When does that happen? Well, we don't know. It's pushed off into the future. It will come. Okay, so let me show you how this breaks down then. When we get to verse 25, we see the beginning of the prophecy. When the prophecy begins, what's the starting date? Daniel 9.25, Daniel says, or this is the, literally the angel telling Daniel this. He says, so you are to know and discern that from the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, this is Jesus, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. It will be built again, talking about Jerusalem, with plaza and moat. By the way, the moat can be a trench. It's a fortification, even in times of distress. Now, dear ones, notice on the timeline, or excuse me, on the the screen you see this underline. We have to understand the beginning of the prophecy is from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. That's the beginning of the decree. Now, there are five different dates that are actually four different dates that scholars look at And they try to say, well, some will claim it happened in 538 B.C., for example. There was a decree given to Cyrus. And this decree that was given to Cyrus was so that the Jews could return and rebuild their temple in Jerusalem. The problem with saying that that is the decree that's being referred to here is notice Daniel is very particular in showing that the decree has to do with rebuilding Jerusalem and its fortifications, not just the temple. Is everyone with me? So the 538 B.C. decree that Cyrus gives to the Jews so that they can go back to their homeland and rebuild their temple didn't have anything to do with the rebuilding of the fortifications of Jerusalem. Okay? Now, there's another date in 520 where Artaxerxes just reiterates the 538 B.C. decree to rebuild the Jerusalem temple. So those two cannot be what Daniel's referring to. Now, many scholars today believe that the decree that's the starting point is the 458 B.C. decree that was given to Ezra. The problem with that date, and you can just jot this in your notes, is that decree, you can read about this in Ezra 7, had nothing to do again with the rebuilding of the fortifications of Jerusalem. It had to do with getting money for the sacrificial system, basically having a fundraiser so that the Jews could reinstitute the sacrifices. So the last date that can be used and the one that should be used is March 5th, 444 B.C. Now, the reason this date works is because this is the date where Artaxerxes gives a decree to not just continue the building process uh, in the temple, etc., but to actually rebuild Jerusalem and its fortifications. Well, notice on the screen, let me point this up with a pointer again. This prophecy is very particular. It says it will be built again with plaza and moat. Notice it's the rebuilding of Jerusalem, not just its temple. The plaza and moat, again, trench, literally, has to do with the fortifications of Jerusalem. That was given in Nehemiah 2. And the date of that, that decree from Artaxerxes was March 5th, 444 B.C. That is the starting point of this prophecy. Now, let me give you another corroboration to this. Let's just do the math real quick. The March 5th, 444 B.C., if that's correct... The first 49 years, notice the seven weeks. Let me try to pull that up here. So everyone see in red the first seven weeks? That first 49 years here would be the building of Jerusalem. And that was completed with its fortifications in 395 B.C. Well, from there, notice you have another 62 weeks of years added to that. And this is the time in which the Messiah would come the first time. So if you add, oops, let me pull it up again. Oops, I lost my pointer. Add the 49 to 434. You have 483 years. Remember, they use 360 days a year. 483 times the 360 is 173,880 days. From March 5th, 444 B.C., if you add that 133,880 days, you come up with March 30th, 8033 in the Julian calendar. That's the very day that Jesus comes riding into Jerusalem. That's the triumphal entry day. Now, this is another reason why I think the 444 B.C. is a lock-in. 
A lot of scholars today who are using the 458 B.C. timing, they try to use the solar calendar, but they come out to Jesus' ministry starting at 26 A.D. Now, what's the problem with Jesus' ministry beginning in 26 A.D.? Well, number one, we know from the gospel accounts that more than likely his ministry lasted for three years. Okay, well, even scholars who are hold to the 30 A.D. date of Jesus' crucifixion, 26, if you add three to that, you get to 29 A.D. It doesn't, it doesn't work, okay? We know, dear brothers and sisters, that 33 A.D. is the best date for Jesus' crucifixion, okay? And that's the very date, the very year, that's prophesied in Daniel 70 weeks, that the Messiah would be cut off, as you're going to find out. What's very interesting is there's a historian who gives corroboration to this. There was a man named Flagin. How many in here have heard of Flagin? He's a historian that's not widely read, but I know many of you, just because you're believers, you've probably read him. Well, Flagin was a chronicler of the Olympics, so he kept track of all the Olympic games. Well, the Olympics began in 776 B.C., and when they began, they would go every four years, meaning not that you would... See, right now we have a time where you don't have the Olympics going on, and they just start every four years. But back in 776 B.C., they were going every four years. In other words, you'd have year one, year two, year three, year four, and the Olympic Games were going on, and then you'd go to the next Olympics. Are you with me? Well, what's interesting is there's a man named Flagin who records that in the 202nd Olympiad, in the fourth year, you had the greatest darkness over the Mediterranean world that mankind had ever seen. In fact, the stars were visible in Turkey. Uh, At the same time, there was such a great earthquake that it was felt as far away as Bithynia, Turkey, but also in Athens, Greece. It was down in the the, uh, upper Mediterranean area along the uh, northern part of North Africa. This was massive. Now, what's very interesting is that darkness, some people like Thallus, another historian, tried to attempt to say that the darkness was due to some form of astrological issue like an, an eclipse. The problem with that is the time in which it occurred, which was noon, and it was around the time it was on Passover, you can't have an eclipse of the sun then. Okay, so when you start putting the data together, this happened. Now, let's, let's just talk about the 202nd Olympiad. The 202nd Olympiad would have begun in 30 AD, or excuse me, 29 AD. Well, the fourth year of it would have been 33 AD. Well, that's the year that Jesus Christ is crucified. So now you have a secular source who's saying, yeah, the very year that Jesus is crucified, there's this great darkness, just as the gospel said. There's this great earthquake, just as the gospel said. And it happens during this time of Passover when astronomically it's impossible to have an eclipse. So that's why, to me, the 33 AD is not only biblically the most accurate, but it's also corroborated by secular historians like this Flagian, who would not, would not have a theological axe to grind. Are you with me? Okay, brothers and sisters, I want you to consider then how precise this prophecy is. That 483 years in advance, God is predicting the very day that his son would come into Jerusalem. Now, oh, let me just keep going with the prophecy for just a moment, because I'm going to show you some other exciting details. Verse 26, let's read. It says, then after the 62 weeks, now remember the 62 weeks is here, so he's already added the 49 years to the 434 years, so 483 total. Then after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing, and the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary, and its end will come with a flood. Even to the end, there will be war desolations are determined. Now, I want you to notice how precise this prophecy is in Daniel. This is what I want to build on. Notice the phrase, after the 62 weeks. Does everyone see that? It says the Messiah would what? Be cut off and have nothing. What's very interesting is Messiah comes in on the very day of the 483rd year, the 173,880th day. But that's the 10th day of Nisan. He comes in on the Lamb Selection Day, But he isn't killed until after that, four days later, on Passover. Well, in the Hebrew, you literally have the term after. It's it's a vav acher. If you say it in Hebrew, it could be vav acher, then then after, and after. So it's so precise. It's not telling you that he's going to be cut off on the very day. It's after that day that he comes in to Jerusalem. Four days later, he ends up after 
the very date he is cut off, he's crucified. That's how precise this prophecy is. Now, the other thing that's very important to notice here in this prophecy is right away we start dealing with the, what happens in 70 AD. Now, how many know in here that in 70 AD, the Romans came to destroy Jerusalem? Well, that's part of this prophecy because notice it says, and the people of the prince, notice that in the box, who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. Again, notice the specificity that Daniel has. He doesn't say the prince, which is a reference to the Antichrist, is the Nagiv, is going to come and destroy the sanctuary. But he says specifically the people of the prince. Now remember earlier in Daniel chapter 2, Daniel chapter 7, we learn that this Antichrist, this little horn, is going to come from what empire? The Roman Empire. A revived Roman Empire. So the people of the prince then would be what? They would be Romans. Well, who destroyed the temple in 70 AD? The Romans did. It wasn't Antichrist. It was the people of the prince. Remember, you have the ten horns. That's going to be the offshoot of Antichrist's kingdom that comes out of the feet in Daniel 2 of that statue, which had to do with the Roman Empire, the fourth kingdom. Okay? So, again, it's very precise. It's not the Antichrist that's going to destroy the temple. It's the people of the prince who's going to do so. Yes, Bob? You had given me permission to reiterate the assignment for next week? Yes. And I do have a comment and a question about this. But let me give the assignment. Those of you who are going to be here next week, and we're going to talk about John 9. I have a slide, actually, in my sermon that led. It was written before I came up with the idea of doing John 9. So you'll, you'll get a little clue. Here's part of our assignment to try to understand John 9. Number one... Are there other Sabbath issues in John that might shed light on this? Sabbath is not repeated a lot here, but it's used a number of times in John for the Jewish leadership to reject Messiah because evidently he's a Sabbath breaker. Look that up. See what you can find in John. One of the things we're learning is an author, author's own writings like John, give us a clue to his meaning. John's meaning is what the Holy Spirit inspired. So that's one part of the assignment for next week. Part two, what does John reveal about, quote, works of God, unquote? Okay, and so works of God comes up in John. Hmm. Now, I would strongly recommend that you look at John 5 if you want to understand John 9. But that's just a little hint. You don't have to do that. But it might help you. And because we're trying to find out what John means. So one <laughs> thing authors do, yeah. uh, Luke does it. Now I'm seeing John does it a lot. Reviews and previews. Exactly. And and there are things where something happens, then it happens again, but it's telling us the same story. Exactly. So I want us to learn how to do that. Now, for, uh, thanks for giving me those. I don't know yeah. if I went over my 30 seconds. No, 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 don't worry. Anyhow, <laughs> on this point, yeah. I debated someone who was an amillennialist. Yeah. And what they claim. I just fact was on a website this week yeah. where somebody says anybody that believes like you, yeah. he didn't mention your name, yeah. is a false teacher. Avoid them. Wow. Yeah. There's no millennium. There's nothing in the future but Jesus returning, yeah. setting up the eternal order of affairs. That's the end of it. Final judgment. That's it. Yeah. No details. Everything in Revelation right. for the most part allegorical. Yeah. Okay. That is a big chunk of the church world believes that. Exactly. And they're telling us we're heretics and false teachers for believing that there are any details that are important. Okay. Yeah. Now, look at all the details Eric is giving us. Yeah. Now, when I did the debate. Yeah. What I pointed to is the first advent. Now, Dear class, Eric is only so far talking about the first advent. Yeah. 
These things happen. Amen. All right? So here's the question. I don't know how we're going to answer it because we're not a millennialist. Right. But hermeneutically, is it valid for there to be a massive change in all the rules and nobody knows it? Right. Okay. And why did the gospel writers point to fulfilled prophecy in detail to prove that Jesus was the Messiah. Exactly. And I don't have encountered them all. I've heard that there were many, many dozens, even hundreds of specific prophecies fulfilled in the first advent. Yeah. Okay. Well, they say, well, we're not denying that, but when it comes to the second advent, you're a false teacher if you think there are any details. Right, exactly. If there's a millennium, if there's an antichrist, if there's a great tribulation or a, you know, a Daniel 70th week, we should suddenly stop being concerned about details. Yeah. Now, my only argument when I came up in debate was, well, who told us the rules changed? Right, exactly. Amen. Yeah, the same hermeneutic rules that apply to the first advent are going to apply to the second advent. And Bob's right. With the, what happens with the amillennialist, and we'll talk more about this. We're going to have Dana. Where's Dana? Dana's here. He's going to do a whole message on the different millennial positions, refuting both postmillennialism and amillennialism. One of the things that's interesting about amillennialism is they try to claim that when Jesus, for example, in the Gospels, talks about there's a day that's coming and now is when there's going to be people who hear the Lord and they'll come out of their graves, some to everlasting life and others to judgment. What the amillennialist will say is, aha, there's only, one there's only one resurrection and one judgment, not realizing that Christ is merely giving a summary of what's going to happen. Well, what happens in the book of Revelation and elsewhere, like here in Daniel, is you're seeing that, no, there's a lot of detail that, it, that, un that really undergirds our eschatology. Okay, so it's not just that there's one resurrection for both the damned and the living, and that's it. It's, it's true if you want to summarize. If, if Bob and I are giving the gospel message, and we see Jesus coming back to judge those who are perishing, but to give salvation to those who believe. We're also taking thousands of years in a lot of details, and we're just condensing it down. Well, Jesus did the same thing oftentimes. So my point is, when the Bible authors like Daniel or like John in the book of Revelation are giving us these details, they're giving it to us for a reason to show that, yes, in general, there is a judgment of the damned and a salvation of the elect, but there are details that happens at different times. So let's go with the details and learn what we can from them and not just have the generals. Okay, that's what the amulenists are falling for. So, for example, Revelation 20, it's going to say, and they, those who had lost their heads because of their faith in Christ, it says they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Do you know what that means in the Greek? That's what my Greek professor told me. It means that they came to life and they reigned with Christ for a thousand years. <laughs> and it's only the amillennialist who says it can't mean that. The thousand years can't mean a thousand years. The coming to life can't be physical. It has to be spiritual. And they do all these gymnastics. Why? Do you know ultimately why? In fact, I'll show you a quote next time in my studies in Romans. A professor, David Inglesma, a Dutch man from Grand Rapids, Michigan, professor, he's an amillennialist. He says, if we lose amillennialism, we lose the church being Israel. And if we lose the church being Israel, we can't do infant baptism anymore. I'll show you the quote. Well, you should lose infant baptism. <laughs> That's the point. They're, they have a theological ax to grind. If their amillennialism is wrong, their ecclesiology, their understanding of the church is wrong. That's why they hold to it. So, very good point, Bob. Yeah, thank you. The, the hermeneutic principles that we used for the first advent are the same that we're going to be using for the second advent as well. So again, here, let's get back to this text here. The people of the prince who are to come are the Romans. Notice what happens to the people of Jerusalem, or I should say Jerusalem itself. It says, they will come and destroy the sanctuary. Its end will come with a flood. Even to the end, there will be war. Desolations are determined. Isn't that what Jesus said in the Olivet Discourse in Luke 21, 24? You see, Luke, in Luke's discourse of the Olivet Discourse, he focuses on 70 AD and the end. Matthew and Mark only focus on the end. Okay, that's just the way the author structured it. Luke 21, 24, Jesus says that Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until when? 
the time of the Gentiles are fulfilled. That's exactly what Daniel 9.26 is saying. Daniel 9.26 is saying the same thing in eschatology that Jesus is teaching in Luke 21.24. Okay? So, 33D. So now, notice we've only up to the 483 years. That was Jesus' first advent. But notice, conspicuously absent, is the last seven years. Well, the last seven years is going to be tied to Jesus' second advent. The Messiah's second advent, because it's the Messiah, the true Christ, who has to put down the fake Christ or the Antichrist. So in the text itself, there's a built-in pause or delay necessitated by the second advent of the 70th week of Daniel. The issue was no one was ever revealed how big a delay it would be. And that's where imminence comes in. Okay, so let's get to the 70th week, Daniel 9.27. It says, and he, now let's stop there. What's the nearest antecedent to he? Well, the nearest antecedent, let's go back, would be the prince. Okay, now who is the prince? It's the Antichrist. Now, uh, I'm sorry, Eric, you've got a question or a comment. I, I, I just, this is actually relates to the 926, the earlier slide. Yeah. And its end will come with a flood. Yes. Now, I'm just going by my memory. I think somewhere I, I took a class where, you know, when the Romans destroyed Jerusalem, they wanted all the gold. I mean, was there a flood involved? I think, did they, was there something where nope. that ties in? No, the way the flood works out is, remember in Isaiah 8, Isaiah talks about the destruction that would come upon by the Assyrians upon Israel, and it would be like a flood. It's a description of how rapid and how violent the destruction is. And so it's imagery that's used elsewhere in the scriptures. The, the uh, enemy army comes like a flood. Okay, it's that sort of idea. Very good question. In fact, you'll see in 927 the term the, on the wing of abominations. The wing of abominations also has to do with the swiftness with which it comes. So it would be very synonymous with the idea of flood for the 70 AD event. So that's the imagery he's using. It's used elsewhere in the prophetic literature for the swiftness of the opposing army and the, the destruction with which it brings. So very good, yeah. So yeah, so now the big issue here is that the and he has to be the Antichrist. So let's just read that, and then I'll make a comment why this is important. It says, And he, the Antichrist, will make a firm covenant with the many for one week, but in the middle of the week... Now stop there just real quick. What's the week? It's the last seven years. Okay, so the last seven years, notice in the middle of the last seven years, he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. And now this, let's just stop there for a moment. Sacrifice and grain offering, you have two different types of offerings before the Lord. You have the bloody and the unbloody. The sacrifices would be the bloody. The grain offerings would be the unbloody. So that's going to be put, there's going to be a stop put to that. And now, and on the wing of abominations, that's the swiftness with which the abominations come, will come one who makes desolate. That's the Antichrist. Even until a complete destruction, one, of this, one that is decreed is poured out on the one who makes desolate. That's obviously destruction of the Antichrist. Now, let me explain why we have to get the and he in the box correct and say that's Christ, not Antichrist. I had someone some years ago that left our church, and part of the reason she left the church is she was absolutely convinced that the and he that you see in the box was Jesus, that it was about Christ and not Antichrist. Now, the reason she held to this is she was a preterist. A preterist believes that all these things were fulfilled in 70 A.D., that's where they try to put everything. And much of the things that in Daniel they try to claim happened at the time of Antiochus Epiphanes IV in like 167 B.C. So they have a theological axe to grind. So the he here cannot be Christ, or excuse me, Antichrist. It has to be Christ in their opinion. Now let's just talk about hermeneutics. First of all, when we see a pronoun like this, and he, we have to go back to the nearest antecedent. And again, the nearest antecedent was the prince. The prince of the people. Well, the prince here is obviously a reference to Antichrist. Are you with me? Okay, so first of all, just grammatically, we have a tie back to that prince, which is the Antichrist. Now, the other point I would make here in Daniel 9.27 is recall, remember what we read back in Daniel 7.25? In fact, let's read it again. Remember what Bob was just teaching us in John? John, he uses reviews. The same thing keeps coming up. Well, we see the same thing in Daniel. Turn to Daniel 7.25. You're going to see the same figure who wears down the saints for three and a half years. And he's not... Okay, so read Daniel 7.25. Let's be good readers. We already saw this figure who's going to do this thing. 
Notice Daniel 7.25. Here's the little horn. Here's the Antichrist. He will speak out against the Most High. Stop there. Would Jesus speak out against the Most High? Okay, so it's not Jesus. It's not Christ. It's Antichrist. Okay, keep going. And he'll wear down the saints of the highest one. Stop there. Wearing down the saints is not a good thing. That's being abusive to the people of God. Is Jesus Christ going to abuse the saints or is he going to save the saints? Save the saints. So again, Daniel 7.25 is about Antichrist, not Christ. So, and he will intend to make alterations in times and in law, and they will be given into his hand. These are the saints for how long? Time, times, and half a time. That's three and a half years. Okay? Now, what does the Antichrist do here? Well, he puts an end to the law at the three and a half year mark. And the implication is he'll also wear down the saints, therefore, for three and a half years. So notice the connection to the Antichrist. The, the question that I would ask anyone who's a preterist, or anyone who holds to these things happening in the time of Antiochus Epiphanes IV, if indeed the he here is Christ, why is he depicted as wearing down the saints in Daniel 7.25? Why is he depicted as speaking out against the Most High if this is Christ? That's the question. Yes, Eric. To ask him all kinds of questions That's today. Good. Um, what a lot of people don't realize, and I think the key, I think, as an amateur here, yeah. the key is in Daniel nine twenty four when it says seventy weeks have been decreed for your people. Yeah, amen. He's talking. To, it, this is the Jewish people. Okay, amen. so we have, we're in the church age now. There's a gap. Yes. There's a prophetic gap, and a lot of people just don't understand that. Between the, uh, you know, between when Messiah was cut off and the coming of the Antichrist. Exactly right, Eric. In fact, this is what Paul is teaching in Romans eleven twenty five. We're going to see that next time in Romans where he says, look, the Jews will come in after what? The fullness of the Gentiles. So there is an order that he's revealing. In fact, he says it's a mystery. But it's been revealed that, yes, the Gentiles come in first. And then God turns his attention again to bringing all Israel to salvation, and that happens in Daniel's 70th week. So the focus, again, is on the people of Israel. We've been grafted into their promises, not the other way around. Now, saying that, there's, at the end of the day, there's one people of God, anyone who's been saved by the blood of the Lamb through Jesus Christ. That's the only way. But the kingdom is coming to Israel. We have to affirm that. Absolutely. Well said. Yeah, the other point I want to make is let's ask the question, if this is a reference to Antichrist, or excuse me, Christ rather than Antichrist, when did Christ make a covenant for seven years? I thought the covenant that he made was an eternal covenant. Would he ever make a covenant and then break it at the midpoint? So the only way then to hold to this idea that this is Christ and not Antichrist is to say, well, the seven years doesn't mean seven years. It's just figurative. Well, if we're going to do that, then the Bible can mean anything we want it to mean. Why don't we just start stipulating that this really has to do with the Vikings? Why not? I'm the reader, and I can determine what it means. He was Bud Grant, and the one week was the time period in which the Vikings would do well, and in the half of it, we lost Chuck Foreman, and everything went to pot. <laughs> right? <laughs> Sorry, I just came up with that out of the top. Chuck Foreman is actually good running back, so no offense to Chuck Foreman. Okay. So, anyway, the point is this is Antichrist. It's obviously not Christ. All right? Is everyone with me there? Now, one thing that people, oh, by the way, I've got to put my timeline here. This is Daniel's 70th week. So, the point is now, what we're waiting for is this last seven years, and we're living sometime in this time period. Think about this as being Jesus' first advent. That's all behind us, and we're living, as Eric pointed out, in the church age or the time of the Gentiles. And once the last Gentile comes to faith, as it were, the time of the Gentiles is fulfilled, the fullness comes in, and God turns his attention again towards Israel. And the 70th week, again, is going to be synonymous with the wrath of God poured out, the salvation of God's people, the rapture begins first. We'll talk about that. Okay. Now, one issue I want to talk about is this gap. Again, people will try to say we're wrong because we believe in a gap between the 483rd year and the last seven years or between the 69th week and the 70th week. Okay. Well, let me just give you some information that shows... Oh, I thought that was my microphone. <laughs> is that a motorcycle? or? Anyway, it wasn't me, so... Okay, well, I just want you to see that, in fact, the biblical writers often will show you a passage from the Old Testament in which you have the first and second advent put right next to each other. And I know Bob is thinking along the same lines. Luke 4, you were thinking of that, weren't you, Bob? <laughs> 
that's a good one. Yeah, exactly. I knew you were thinking of that. So let's do that. I want you to see that in the Bible itself, you'll sometimes see a prophetic passage where within one sentence you have works of the Messiah in both the first and second advent. So let's turn our Bibles real quickly to Luke 4, 18 through 20. Luke 4, 18 through 20. And I want you to see, remember, this is Jesus citing from Isaiah 61, 1 through 2. He's citing this in his hometown synagogue. Now, one of the interesting things about this is there was a schedule in which oftentimes Torah was read in the synagogue. And it may be just providentially that Jesus had that very reading for that day. In other words, my point in saying this, I don't know if Jesus goes back and takes a scroll out and starts thumbing through it and gets to Isaiah 61 because that's what he wants to say. I think that that may have been providentially the reading for the day. Okay, again, I can't prove that. But that's how they used to do it. It would be on a a calendar, and the people would read the scroll as the certain day would come up. They would have their turn. If they were a male in the community, they would read from that section that came up. So if that's true, then Jesus comes up providentially. What's the passage? It's Isaiah 61, and it's about him. Listen to what he says. He says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. This is all from Isaiah 61, 1 and 2. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now stop there. Does everyone see where it says to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor? That is Jesus stopping in Isaiah 61.2. Do you know what the next part of the verse says in Isaiah 61.2? It says, and the day of the vengeance of our God. But Jesus doesn't cite that. Why? Because that's his second advent. So do you notice how the first and second advent, what Christ will do is in one sentence in Isaiah 61, verse 2? And so that shows you that indeed we can have a gap within Daniel's 70th week, especially in light of the fact that we know that there's a gap between the first and second advent of the Messiah. Okay? Let me give you one more example. You don't have to turn to this, but just jot it down. Think about... John 19.37. John 19.37, John makes the comment. He says, and again, another scripture. He says, they will look upon the one whom they pierced. Well, that's from Zechariah 12.10. Zechariah 12.10 has to do with one day the Messiah is going to be pierced, but the people will look upon him and they will mourn for him. Okay, well, notice in John's writing, he doesn't talk about their mourning. He just talks about them looking upon the one whom they pierced. Why? Because the mourning or the repentance comes at the second advent. So again, you have two advents that are put together, as it were, in one prophecy. So my point in saying this, dear ones, is don't be embarrassed as a premillennialist, as one who takes the book of Daniel seriously here with the 70 weeks prophecy, by believing a gap between the 69th week and the 70th week. It is built in to the text itself. Is there, a fair, is there a gap between the first and second advent? Oh, yes. Well, then there must be a gap between the 69th and the 70th week. Are you with me? Okay, so we don't have to be embarrassed about that at all. Okay, now, we've just established what is the 70th week of Daniel. The 70th week is the last seven years that's going to come upon the world in which you're going to have an antichrist rise to power. But it's in that milieu, in that backdrop, where the Christ, the true Christ, comes back and he destroys him and he sets up his kingdom at the end. Okay, so that's the 70th week of Daniel. That's what's happening. So the issue then is you and I are living sometime during this time period, and we don't know when this is going to break forth. We have no idea. And that's where imminence comes in. So what I want you to see then is how the 70th week of Daniel is related to the day of the Lord and the parousia. Now, what's the term parousia mean? It's the technical term for the coming of Christ in Greek. Okay, so let's look at how these relate to one another. If we don't know when Daniel's 70th week is going to come, is it right to say that it's going to come like a thief? We don't know when it's going to come, right? Does anyone know that there has to be a certain time period or a certain day that it's going to come about by? Well, no, we don't know. Well, isn't it interesting that the day of the Lord comes like a thief? While the people are saying peace and safety, sudden destruction comes upon them. That's what the Apostle Paul says. Well, isn't it interesting that Jesus Christ says that his parousia, his coming, is also like a thief? Well, if the day of the Lord comes like a thief, and the coming of Christ is like a thief, and we can say the 70th week of Daniel comes like a thief, you have to say that they're coterminous, that is, that they happen at the same time, or they're synonymous. Why? 
Because if one preceded the other, then one would cease to be a thief or come like a thief. Okay, if I told you, I said, hey, Billy's house is going to be robbed at 12.04. I know the guys are going to do it, but what you have to wait for is they're coming in a blue car. Well, you would wait for the blue car. You'd probably sit your watch. You'd maybe get up a little early, 11.30, probably. And then you'd get your shotgun. You'd load it up. You'd get your tuna sandwich, tuna fish sandwich out. You'd have 911 in the speed dial. You'd be loaded for bear. Why? Because there's something to tip you off when Billy's house is going to be robbed. But the idea of something coming like a thief means you have no idea when it's coming. That's the point. By the way, two terms for thief in the Bible, a kleptase and a lastase. Now, the lastase is one who's a robber. They, they, they do their robbing and their thievery by beating you over the head with a club. But the kleptase, where we get our term kleptomaniac, those are people who can't stop stealing, a kleptase doesn't use a blunt force object to get what he wants. He uses stealth. The thief-like imagery that Jesus uses in all of discourse and that Paul uses is the kleptase. It uses stealth. The idea is that you don't know when they're coming. That's the whole point. I'm sorry, Dan, you had something. I was just going back to uh, Daniel 9.27 where it talks yes. about the middle of the week. He'll put a stop to sacrifice and grain yes. offering. Does that um, indicate that temple sacrifice, the temple sac- sacrifice in Jerusalem will be reestablished at that time? So I think so, yeah. So is there... Uh, does that have anything, um, any effect on the imminency? So does that have to be established before the, the rapture Very good takes question. Place? Yeah, I would say no, and here's why. And I would also say, by the way, this is the same answer that would apply to people saying, hey, could the coming of the Lord really be at hand in James' day? Um, or let's take a different time period. Martin Luther, uh, you talked about the Reformation. Could he rightly say that the coming of the Lord was imminent? After all, Israel wasn't in the land until 1948, you know, 400 years later, basically. Well, my answer to that would be yes, it can be imminent. Here's why. The, at the inception of the 70th week, we know there's going to be a rapture. I'll be proving that further here. But at that time, that could be the act or the action that happens in history which instigated Israel coming to be a nation. In other words, the world is in such upheaval that now, you, in order to have peace, you have an Antichrist who's supposedly a, a peaceful person who sets up this kingdom in Israel because otherwise there's going to be warfare with them and the Arabs. And for safety's sake, they come up with a king, kingdom in Israel. But think about also they can build very rapidly this temple. And I think it will be built in the 70th week. I think that may be, in fact, part of the deal that Antichrist makes. Okay, You get to build your temple again and you can have your sacrifices again. And everything seems swimmingly, it's going swimmingly with the Jews until the three and a half year mark. Perhaps they just get done building it, and what does he do? He sets himself up in it. You know, it could be that sort of idea. Now, what does that do, by the way, regarding Christ's once and for all sacrifice? Well, we know that Jesus Christ is the once and for all sacrifice, and no matter what's going on in the temple, it doesn't bring salvation. Salvation comes through faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. Now, one question that comes from this, it's important to think about, is in the millennial kingdom, in Ezekiel chapters 40 through 48, there's a reference to a temple in which it appears that there are sacrifices again. Okay, now what do we do with that? If we're premillennialist, how do we answer that? Well, one thing Bob has always astutely said, number one, when Jesus is reigning, we'll let him determine the law for us. Okay, Jesus will be reigning with us. But let me say this too, to add to that, when people gave sacrifices in the Old Testament, did the sacrifice itself provide atonement? Didn't the writer of Hebrews say that the blood of bulls and goats could never provide atonement? Didn't God say in Isaiah 1, when the people were putting their sacrifices in a vain way to God, didn't he say, to, I'm paraphrasing, stick it in your ear? I'm sick of your, your festivals. I'm sick of your sacrifices. I don't want anything more to do with them. Well, how could he say that if they were really in and of themselves efficacious for salvation. So what the sacrifices were, yes, you had to do them if you're an Israelite, but you did them with the understanding that salvation and forgiveness of sins came from Yahweh who gave the sacrifice. That's what Leviticus 17.11 says. So if the Jews put the goat in the offering plate, so to speak, the sacrifices looking forward to the time of Messiah, and you and I do the Lord's Supper and the things that we're commanded to do, Looking back to the Messiah, can we ever say that the sacrifices were anything other than commemorative? So here's the point. If the sacrifices look forward to the Messiah, why couldn't they one day in the temple be looking back to the work of the Messiah? 
They certainly could. But it's always one sacrifice that saves the people of God, the God-man who, who sacrificed himself once and for all, forevermore, never anything other than his sacrifice. Yes, Judy. I just have a question. Is there any importance to Jerusalem moving their capital? Um, as far as the recognition of it uh, by our country? You know, I, um, I, it's obviously significant in the sense, how would I say this? Politically, I think it's significant. I think it's significant morally that we have a president who's willing to say the obvious. Let's let the Jews have their capital. Um, what other nation doesn't get to determine its own capital? That, to me, s s seems to smack of anti-Semitism at best, to say that only one nation g doesn't get to determine where its capital is. Saying that, I'm, on the one hand, as a citizen of the United States, I'm like, yes, praise God, that's wonderful, because it's a moral good to recognize this wonderful country that's been a blessing to the world to say, yes, they get to determine their capital. At the same time, I don't think salvation is ever coming to the Israelites because America intervenes. Okay, so Zechariah 14, who intervenes? It's the Messiah alone. So, but at the same time, God providentially is working out history and he's bringing all these events to come about. But what's interesting, Judy, let me just leave you with this. Isn't it interesting, the hatred of Israel? I mean, let's say um, the Russians said, well, we're going to make our capital, um, well, it's no longer Stalingrad. What is it, St. Petersburg? Is that what it is? Oh, anyway, let's say they moved theirs. Well, who would care? Nobody would have anything to say. Or let's say they moved it back to Moscow, or it is at Moscow. But my point is, what other nation doesn't get to determine its capital? The very fact that Germany and all these other nations were angry with us shows the deep-rooted hatred of Israel. Because that there's a God in heaven who reigns, and he's made literal promises. It's a supernatural hatred. You know, you look at the left in America, and the Palestinians, they support them over the Israelites. Why? Because you and I think morally, we say, hey, one side has given us good things. The Israelites have given us innovations in medicine. The Palestinians have given us what? A better suicide vest. Right? And the left sides with the people are producers of the suicide vest. And you say, well, why? Because they don't think morally from the scriptures. They think in terms of the haves versus the have-nots. Everything is seen through that prism. Who are the haves? The Israelites. And who are the have-nots? The Palestinians. So they don't think morally. They think through that prism. And that's why they're doing what they're doing. Yeah. So anyway, I'm sorry to get sidetracked here. I guess we're almost out of time too. But um, very good. Now, let's... Um, Let's see, what time do we have? We're three minutes. Okay. One thing I want to point out is, remember Bob had mentioned the idea of a composite event last time? I just want to show you that this parousia of Christ, and again, what I'm pointing out on this screen right here is that if the day of the Lord comes like a thief, the parousia, the coming of Christ, comes like a thief, they, happen to ha they have to happen coterminously at the same time. Otherwise, one would tip you off to the other. Now, if that's true, what I'm going to lay out is that the parousia, the coming of Christ, is in fact this entire 70th week. It's a composite event. In other words, there's many days, and I can prove that to you from the Bible. Matthew 24, 37, Jesus said, for the coming of the Son of Man is just like the days of Noah. Notice that term, that's parousia. That's where I'm getting it from. It's the term in Greek. The parousia, the technical term for the coming of the Son of Man, is just like the days of Noah. Now, identical phraseology in Luke 17, 26, but there's just one change that Luke uses. Remember, he's inspired by the Spirit. Notice Jesus is here, and just as it happened in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days plural of the Son of Man. The days plural is synonymous with the parousia. So the parousia then can't be a one-day event. It's a many-day event. And therefore, we're in good standing to say, yes, it begins at the 70th week with the rapture of the church. God, Jesus pours his wrath upon the world and the unregenerates. Then he comes back in victory with the church and establishes kingdom. Why? Because there's many days. The post-tribulationists will say, well, no, there's just one day. There only has to be one day with the parousia, and he comes back, and that's it. But no, there are many days to the parousia. Does everyone see that? A very important reference there that we understand the parousia isn't a one-day event. It's a complex, of event, complex event, composite. Okay, so with that, I guess we're out of time here. We'll get back to more of this. And believe it or not, at the end of this, eschatology will have been made easy. <laughs> That's the prayer anyway. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you, Nancy. All right. We'll try. We'll try our best to make it easy. Oh, Heavenly Father, thank you for the privilege of looking at these wonderful things, looking at your redemptive calendar in advance, 
We thank you, Lord, for the precision of your prophecy. And uh, I pray, Lord, that if there are any hearing this that don't believe, that perhaps through this prophecy they would, that they would understand that there's a God in heaven that knows the future and that the Bible is your word. We pray that you would accomplish these things even through us in your name. I do pray, Heavenly Father, also for Bob. Uh, give him his good voice that he's been having. I pray that we would all have ears to hear what he has to say in Third John. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.